Thank you, Joseph. Uh, good morning again. Uh, we are in our third week of our series uh, in the book of Philippians. Uh, Philippians has been called Paul's epistle of joy, that everything that he writes in this letter to the church at Philippi is to try to the, drive them deeper into an experience of joy. The only problem with that, and the only hesitation one might have with that as they read through the book is um, it doesn't come, joy doesn't come to the Christian the way that we normally think. We normally like to think about joy coming by adding to our life, by mastering something in our life, by conquering something in our life. And Paul actually flips that on its head and, and, and says, actually, the path to joy for the Christian is upside down. The path to the joy uh, for the Christian comes by losing, not by winning. So we're calling our series in Philippians, Winning by Losing, the path to joy in the book of Philippians, uh, that Paul is kind of constantly telling people, telling the church of Philippi, telling us what we must lose, what we must open our hands up on, what our death grip has to open itself up to in order to gain joy. The, uh, the theme ver- verse for the whole book and the theme verse for our series is in chapter three. We'll get to it. We'll preach on it in a couple weeks, but he says, uh, Paul says in chapter three, whatever were my gains to me, I now consider a loss. Like I used to try to climb the ladder spiritually and be the best of the best, but actually looking back on that, that that's a loss to me. That wasn't what was, that's not how I should have gone after getting joy was adding and gaining. What used to be a gain for me is now a loss to me. What is more, I consider everything a loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whose sake I have lost all things. So it's this, it's this dance, it's this relationship uh, that once, once we belong to Jesus, we are on a trajectory downward actually. <laughs> of the, the joy for the Christian comes by dying and losing, not by gaining and winning. So each week, Paul presents different things in our life that must be lost in order to gain, uh, not more of Jesus, you already have all of Jesus, but to gain an awareness and an experience and a reality of deeper and deeper joy in Jesus. So, Paul is in prison, context matters uh, for all biblical interpretation, but uh, Paul is in prison writing to this beloved church at Philippi, and the church has wanted to know, the church has gotten word that Paul is in jail. And the church wants to know from Paul, are you okay? Are you going to be okay? What's going to happen to you? And what if you die in jail? What if you get executed? Are we going to be okay? Paul, how are, you, how are you thinking about death and life? And how are you thinking about the possibility of never making it out of there? And what are we going to do without you? And if you die, how are we going to be okay without you in the world? And so there's this anxiety and stress and, and worriedness from the church, uh, wondering, Paul, how are you doing in jail and how is your psyche in jail? And how are you thinking about this prospect of dying? What will it mean for you and what will it mean for us? So the seven verses that Joseph just read is Paul's answer to that question. Paul, are you okay? Are you going to be okay? Are we going to be okay without you? Paul's answer in these seven verses, which we'll kind of pull apart, is actually summed up in one verse in the seven verses. It's the center of this entire passage. It's, it's Paul's main answer to this question. In fact, it's not just Paul's main answer to this question of are you going to be okay and how are you thinking about dying. Um, it's actually Paul's answer to every question. You know, you've heard like in church Jesus is always the right answer. That's not true. But for Paul, uh, this is always his answer. Like any question that you could ask Paul about his life and his ministry and his death and his view of the world is in this one verse. In fact, some theologians in, in studying this verse said, um, this is Paul's entire New Testament theology summed up in one little verse. It's everything to Paul. It's Paul's little answer to this question, but it's really Paul's answer to every question. He's saying, okay, church at Philippi, you wanna know how I'm doing? 
You want to know how I'm thinking about dying? You want to know how I'm thinking about the prospect of getting my head chopped off and thinking about no longer being here, thinking about staying here and suffering and all this, all that's going on? You want to know how I'm doing and what's going on in my existential self? Here you go. Verse 21. This is, this is Paul's life thesis. He says, For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, first question can we read that in the back? Yes. How are we doing? Weatherly, how are we looking on the live stream? We good? Okay. Um, don't know if you can read at home, but you can at least see the words at home, okay? There we go. So this is Paul's life verse. This is his life thesis, and we're going to pull this apart. We're going to study this, this one verse because it's Paul's answer to the question, Paul, how are you doing? But it's also, as we pull apart this verse, as we begin to understand this verse, we will then begin to see how Paul is leading us to winning by losing. What is he asking us to lose in order that we might gain more joy? The pithiness of this one sentiment, the pithiness, the short, like power-packed punch, it comes through a little bit in, in the English, but in the Greek, it's even shorter and even more punchy. In Greek, this is just four words. There's no verbs in the Greek, in, the, in this sentence. In the original Greek of Philippians, Paul says, live Christ, die gain. There's no verb. So what he's saying is, is almost like they're synonymous. Like, I can't talk about my life without talking about Christ. I can't talk about my death without talking about gaining something. And so what he's saying is, is like, life, Christ, death, gain. Like, yes, my life is founded in Christ. My life is built on Christ. My life is united to Christ. My life is so intertwined with Christ that I can't talk about life without talking about Christ because it's almost like they're one and the same. And like we said, same is true on the other side, that death is gain. Death means gain. Death has buried within it a massive gain. But also notice the conjunction. Sorry, this is not an English lesson, but I'm not talking about verbs and conjunctions all morning, but give me a minute. The, the conjunction here is really important. To live is Christ and to die is gain means something for us. He doesn't say to live is Christ or to die is gain like one of them might be true, not sure, the other one might or might not be true, or to live is Christ, but man, to die is gain. What he's saying is, is to live is Christ and to die is gain means they're both true. And they're not competing with each other for what is more true, and they're not, they're not actually, one doesn't rule out the other. They can actually both exist at the same time. To live is Christ, true statement. Death is gain, true statement for Paul. Both true together. Paul is trying to tell the Philippian church they're worried about him dying, how he's doing, what it's all going to mean, and Paul lays it out very bluntly. He's saying, hey, let me tell you, church, how I'm thinking about my current situation, and you're asking me about life and death, and what's it going to mean for me, and what's it going to mean for you, and am I going to be okay, and are you all going to be okay? Let me tell you how I think about my experiential, ontological self. For me, this is true about me. And actually, he's saying to the church, Christian, these two things, to live as Christ is to die as gain, no matter your circumstances, are always the only two options you have. This is what is true about you always. These are your two options, to live as Christ and to die as gain. Regardless of what you're facing, these are always the two options for the Christian in all circumstances. So we're going to talk about these two options. We're going to talk about, we're going to kind of compare and contrast them, what's he saying with each one, and I want to kind of try to get to the bottom of each one, or is, we're not going to get to the bottom in, in 30 minutes, but we want to try to unpack some of them, but then we're going to talk about what's he doing with the two options, okay? That's where we're going to get to the winning by losing, so we're going to unpack each side for just a minute. What does each side kind of mean, 
And then we're going to talk about the tension that exists there and what's he, what's he trying to lead us to. So first, to live as Christ. Well, like we said, um, Paul is, is saying, uh, he live Christ, life Christ. I get my entire sense of self, I get my entire existence, I get my entire being from this person of Jesus that I'm so united to and intertwined with Jesus. I can't talk about life being Christ without also, I can't talk about my own life without talking about Christ because they're one and the same. So he gets his sense of self from something bigger than him. He gets his sense of self from something outside of him. He's not looking inward to get his sense of self. He's looking outward and upward and into the transcendent. My life is, comes from, means, depends on, is built on, is rooted in Christ. That's a big deal to Paul. That's a big deal to the modern mind. We are told to get our sense of self from ourself. We, we, would, we would, the modern mantra compared to this would be to live is me, to die is loss. But this, this is not true for Paul. He's saying, actually, I get my sense of self from something totally other than myself. And I don't need you to tell me who I am. I also don't need to tell me who I am. I get my life from Christ, to live as Christ. But here's what he's, what he's starting to say. And this comes throughout the rest of the, of the paragraph. He's saying, because my life is Christ, because life Christ, because life is built on the person of Christ and the work of Christ, he's saying, my life is actually starting to look like Christ's. There's some things about my life that are actually true because to live as Christ. Because I've been so foundationally united to Christ, my life is now starting to look like Christ. So let's do a little bit of mathematical, logical conclusion here. Let's, let's do two plus two here. Okay, if life is Christ for Paul and his life is starting to look like Christ, what does Paul's life look like? Context. He's in prison. Not fun. Okay. He's suffering. Not fun. He says all throughout this little section and all throughout the book, my existence is to serve you. Like, I, I exist for your good. He says, if I, I want to continue for fruitful labor in you, like, this is my goal is to love and serve you. And so we start to go, wait, 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 wait. If my life is Christ, if the Christian's life is Christ, and Paul understood that he, get, he got a sense of self from Christ, his life is also starting to look like the source of his life. Does that make sense? So his life is starting to, under, to, to, to reflect the source of its life. We read this in the call to worship. Daryl read it for us. But Isaiah chapter 53, Isaiah 53. Now Paul's not referencing Isaiah 53 here, but it, it, it's, very, it's very related. Because here's what's going on in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is a, is a chapter that prophesies in the Old Testament all about the coming Messiah and what his life would be like. Isaiah calls the, the coming Messiah the suffering servant. And so Isaiah pulls apart and says, here's, here's, what your, here's what your Messiah, Israel, here's what your king come, here's what your uh, waiting hope of Israel, this is what his life is gonna be like. Let me read for you again. Listen to the description that Isaiah gives for the life of Christ. You ready for this? He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Okay, not only is that the life of Christ, but what Paul just told you, and what this verse, or what this section is trying to tell you, Isaiah just said, hey, the Messiah is going to be despised, the Messiah is going to be rejected, he was a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief, like, do you know the kind of life you have to lead, the kind of life you have to have, that someone would look at the whole narrative of your life and they would say, that was a life well acquainted with grief. 
And not only that, that like his whole life, the life of Christ, the life of, of the Messiah came and his whole life, like from birth to cross, was a life of being rejected, like his friends didn't understand him, was a life of being misunderstood. We esteemed him not, like as, as one from whom men hide their faces. That was the life of Christ. Now here, let me say two things about that. One is, the creator of the cosmos, before the world even began, wrote the narrative that we're living in. And he started something in a garden and it's ending in, in a city and heaven is coming to earth. But in, in between, let me tell you what he wrote and how he wrote himself into the story. The one who made the story wrote himself as a character that this would be true of him. A life marked by rejection, a life marked by uh, being despised, a life marked by sorrow, and a life marked by grief. What kind, what kind of God are we dealing with that he would say about himself, I am a man well acquainted with grief, meaning I spend a lot of time with it. I know a lot about grief, and that is my life. Now here's, here's, something, here's something that Paul is making the connection for us here. Look, Paul is saying, I get it. I get it, yeah, my life looks like that too. I know what it's like to be despised. I know what it's like to be rejected. I know what it's like to have sorrow. I know what it's like to have grief. My life is a life of suffering. It's hurting, it's not working. My life is painful. My life, I'm being rejected by men as, from, as one from whom men hide their faces. So here's, what, here's, here's the first thing, the, kind of the first layer for Paul's life verse, to live as Christ. He's saying, yeah, my life is actually starting to look like Jesus's. So here's what I wanna ask you. Does that sound like the life you want? Because it, it, th- this verse gets pulled out of context and certainly misunderstood. I, I know I've done it. Um, to live is Christ and it's butterflies and joy and community and we all, just, we all just have laughter and love and acceptance and we just, why can't we all just get along? And, and there's this, there's this temptation to believe that to live as Christ means my life's gonna go well. My life won't have pain and my life won't have sorrow and it'll go the way that I want it to go. And man, if I would just, if I would just make my life more like Christ, then it will go the way that I want it to go. And so we can even hear this verse to live as Christ and go, man, if I want my life to have some joy, I need to be more like Christ. I need to work myself and climb the ladder and be more righteous and get myself and gain myself some more joy. That's not what Paul's saying. He's saying that to live as Christ means this is how, this is how your life's gonna look and feel and be experienced. Not to the degrees that Christ was, but if you're, gonna, if you're gonna have your life built on Christ, it will start to emulate Christ, and to emulate Christ means you will be someone who is well acquainted with grief and sorrow. Paul knew it. For Paul to live as Christ, and here's what he's doing. He's living in the full weight of his reality. We're gonna talk about that theme and just as we unpack more of it, but just hear it now. Paul is not unaware of his reality. So that's one option for Paul as he looks at his life. And, and the Philippian church is going, Paul, are you going to be okay? How are you thinking about your life? He goes, to live is Christ. And I've become very comfortable with that, knowing that this is what it means. Knowing that my life is marked by these things. So the other option, to die is gain. Now our passage uh, says far less about this, and that's kind of the point. That's kind of intentional that, that Paul would do that. Um, because, because think about this. Paul says, um, to depart is to be with Christ. So he knows if he dies, he will go be with Jesus. That's great. But he actually says, and it's far better. 
And I would just look at you and I would say, if that's what life is like, doesn't anything sound better than that? <laughs> and, he, and so here's what this means. He's saying, hey, do you know what it means to die? Do you know why die is such a gain? Do you know why I would rather depart and be with Christ and why it's far better? It's because dying means no suffering. And I just told you that my life is all suffering. I'm rejected and I'm acquainted with grief and I'm full of sorrow and I'm being despised and rejected and I'm in prison for you. And I'm being falsely accused and I'm, I'm not supposed to be in this jail and it's not fair and it's unjust, but I, I'm telling you, this is my life. But this would be way better. And that's, that's kind of what Paul is saying. Like, he, he doesn't need to tell you a whole lot about why this is a gain because he just told you how hard life is. And that would be, that would be a gain. Now he's not suicidal. He's not saying the world would be a better place without me and, and he's, not, he's not narcissistic. He's not navel gazing. He's not only thinking about himself but a healthy Christian that understands that this is the life of our Messiah and this is the life of all who will build their life on Christ and be united to Christ, a healthy Christian understands, I can't wait to die. <laughs> like it will be so much better. I would rather depart to be with Christ because it would be better. But then he says something interesting because he's just finished talking about I would rather depart to be with Christ. All my pain's gonna go away. The hurting will stop. I'll get to be with Jesus face to face. It'll be a gain. And then he says this. In the, in the NIV, he uses this word. Our ESV translation that we read this morning says a little different. He says, I am torn between the two. Our, our translations say, I am hard pressed between the two. Now, he's not saying, the Lord brought me to the ice cream store and I was given all these choices and I, do I want mint chocolate chip or do I want Rocky Road? Like I'm torn, I don't know, like you pick for me, God, I don't know. He's not saying that, he's not saying I'm torn because option A and option B, I just, I don't know. That's not what he's saying. He's not torn between which one is better, He's torn between this tension that exists, this pressure cooker that exists between what he desires, he says that, I desire to go be with Jesus. He's torn between his desire and his reality. Reality, don't know how to spell that word. Don't worry about it, it's reality, okay? Here's what, here's what Paul just said though. I'm not torn between do I want this or this. I'm torn that I want this, but I have this. And that place is a pressure cooker. That place creates a hard pressure. That's what he says, I'm hard pressed between the two. I'm being torn between the two, not because I don't know which one to choose. I'm being torn because I know which one I want, but the one that I want is not what I have. It's the tension of desire and reality. Listen to verse 23 and 24. I am hard pressed, torn between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh for your sake is more necessary. Paul's saying, I desire to be with Jesus. That's what I want. That's what I desire. That's what I wish was happening. But it's not happening. I'm torn between the two. I'm not with Jesus today. And what Jesus has me here to deal with today is this, he hasn't taken me home yet. He hasn't let me die yet. Even though this is what I want, because it's far better, no suffering, this is what I have to deal with today. And so I'm stepping into what I have to deal with today, which is this life. He's torn between the two. And here's what I would ask you. Do you know that place? Do you know the place of being torn between desire and reality? 
Do you know the place of being torn, the pain of a life that you can envision, the one you want, and the one you have? Do you know this place between the two? Do you know what it's like to be hard-pressed between the life that you want, the things that you wish were happening, the things that you wished had happened, and the things that are happening and the things that are? Do you know the weight of what you desire and having to hold the weight of your desire with the reality of what is? If you know that place, you know this place. Torn. It's, it's hard, it's, it's sad, it's painful. So when Paul says, I'm hard pressed, like this is, this, is, this is destroying me to have to live in this place between these two, between desire and reality. But most of us, some, some of us have, have not gone on the journey of uncovering our desire, our eternal desire. Like, you, do, you may not know what that word means for you. Like, do you know what you long for? Do you know where your longing comes from? Do you know what your longing is aimed at? Do you know the life that you want? Some of us need to go on that journey. Here's the problem. For those of us that have gone on this journey, when we, when we say, I know what I want, I know what I desire, here's how we've all been trained. And when I say trained, I literally mean, like, you've been to training on this because you've grown up in this world in this era. That the Western mind is told, I have a desire for something, but I don't have it yet. I have a longing for something, but I don't have it yet. So you are told, let nothing stop you. And if you want something, go get it. You have a desire, you have a longing, you have a want, you have a need, you have aspirations. Don't let anybody tell you that you can't have your desire. Go get it. And so if you don't have the life that you want, if, you, if your desires aren't being met, if it's not happening the way that you want it to happen, you and I are all told and actually encouraged and trained to say, then I'll go make for myself the life that I want and nothing is allowed to stop me. Or if we've tried that, it's really difficult. If we've tried that and it doesn't work, here's what else we do. We have this desire, we have this longing, I've tried to go get it, it's not working. And so here's what, we're, here's what we do. We'll just numb it. We'll just do escapism. I'll just medicate it. I'll just addict it. I'll just shut it down, I'll just power it down, and I will, I will pretend like this di- desire isn't here. But either way, we're either told to go get it or don't accept it. Like, don't deal with it. You don't have to deal with a desire that you have that is being unmet. Unmet desire is bad, and because unmet desire is bad, either go change it or refuse to accept it. That's how, that's how we're trained. That's what we've been told. That's what, I don't care if no one's ever said those words to you. We think that way because you were born and raised in this era, in this world. But look at what Paul does in, in, the, in the tornness, in the tensionness between reality and desire. Listen to what Paul says. He's faced with the option of what he wants, what he longs for, what he wishes was happening. And listen to what he says in verse 24. It is more necessary for you that I remain. Now, that may not sound like a lot, but here's what he's saying. And then he says, convinced of this, in the next verse, convinced of this, I know that I will go on remaining in the flesh. Here's what he's saying. He says, this is what I want, but I am going to choose to receive reality. I'm going to choose, as long as I'm here, I'm alive and I'm breathing. And as long as I'm alive and I'm breathing, I know what the Lord has for me. And what the Lord has for me is this life. So he says, I'm convinced of this. As long as I'm breathing, my life is to deal with reality. He's essentially saying, I know what is being chosen for me. 
That's the display. That's the example. That's what Paul is saying here in the tension. Paul is dealing with reality. Over against the thing that tells us if you have unmet desire to go get it, Paul is saying, actually, biblically, the best way to deal with reality is not to go get some other life. It's to receive it. Go get your desire or receive your reality. Those are the two options. And Paul's saying, I know, I'm being torn in this place. This is what I want. This is what I have. And the best way that Paul's saying to deal with not getting what I want is to deal with what I have. To receive it, step into it, be present with it, live into it. Paul is dealing with what is, not with what could be, not with what he wishes were happening. Paul is dealing with reality. When faced with unmet desire, he doesn't say, I'll go get it. He says, I'll receive my reality instead. Seems counterintuitive. Seems crazy, I know. We don't live like that. Example, incomplete example, or maybe incomplete illustration. If you've ever been to like a five-star Michelin restaurant, I've been to one, okay, I'm not loaded. Someone gave it to me as a gift, okay. It was, I didn't pay for it myself, but somebody gave my wife and I this gift years ago. Catbird seat, downtown, it's amazing. Here's what's amazing about going to some of these restaurants, some of these, the one I went to. Here's, here's, what, here's what it's like to be there. There's no menu. And there's a five-star chef in the back who's created the seven-course menu for that night, and they start bringing stuff out there, and literally you go, ah, I, don't eat, I don't eat that kind of stuff. And you go, that night you do. Because here's, here's, what, here's what you're trusting. They know what they're doing. They're way better at choosing for me than I would even be choosing if I had a menu to choose from. And I'm trusting that what is coming out to me, I need to eat, and it will be good for me. And I will... And I will receive my reality tonight. And so the master chef of the universe, this this is what Paul's saying, hey, you need to eat what the chef has given you to eat. You can wish you were at a different restaurant, you can wish, you can think that you know how to cook that better, you can think that like the food would be better if you'd gotten choices, or you could eat it. And as you're eating it, you could say, this is what the chef thinks that I need. This is what I'm supposed to be eating right now. And I, and I can be angry about it and throw it back and send it back to the kitchen and say we're going to a different restaurant. Or I can say, maybe I'll trust the one back there who thinks this is going to be really, really good for me. Dealing with reality is the only way to handle unmet desire. Dealing with reality is the only way to handle unmet desire. Being present with what is, being present with the pain of what is, is the only healing for the pain of unmet desire. Now, I'm not talking about like if you're, if you're, in, if you're in an abusive reality or there's, like there, there's things about your life that may need to change, but dealing with reality will mean dealing with those things. Like deal, maybe putting up boundaries, like to receive the reality that you're in may mean that like some drastic things need to happen instead of pretending like they're not there, instead of living in a fantasy world that I don't actually have this to deal with. Like dealing with reality doesn't mean just grinning and bearing it. It may mean like owning up that this, this is my reality and to deal with reality means I have to live into it. So what does it mean to live in reality and deal with it? to receive reality, to deal with what is, is such a helpful, healthy call for the Christian. It's a call that puts us in our place. It's a call that teaches us and instructs us on how to be truly human. 
is what Joseph read at the end of the, of the assurance of pardon after our confession. At, at the end of Psalm 103, it's, God says, for he remembers that we are dust. And here's the invitation. You need to remember that you're dust. You and I need to remember that we're finite and not infinite and that we deal with reality as finite creatures in, that were made by an infinite creator. This is, this is biblical wisdom from start to finish. You and I are finite and not infinite. Do you want to know what it means to be fully human? Do you want to know what it means to be fully alive? Do you want to know what it means to step into the fullness of who you were meant to be? It looks like receiving your limitations in dealing with your reality. That's what it means. It cuts with the grain of how you and I were made to be. It acts in accordance with our design. Do you know that as a finite human being, the only thing, the only thing that you have been given autonomy and control over is the present moment. Like right now, and right now, and right now, right now. Like you don't, you are unable to change what's going to happen today. You're unable to change what has happened. You're able to step into and receive the reality that you're currently living in. Jesus could come back in two minutes, but until then, you and I, as humans, are called to receive, not control, receive reality. You can't control the things that you wish you could control, and to be brought back into our finitude, into our limitedness, is what makes us and keeps us human. It has nothing to do with controlling or manipulating the future, and it keeps us in humble, reliant dependence in the present. I know this is incredibly difficult. This, 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 like, this is counterintuitive. This does not feel like it's what we're supposed to be doing. But are you in the tension right here? Are you experiencing in any way this tension between what you desire and what's reality? Here's what the Bible would say to you. In every circumstance of that, you could fill in this board with what you desire and what your reality is and how those two things don't seem to be lining up. And I know you've all got it. You wish this was going this way. You wish this was going that way. You wish it had happened this way. You wish this would change. And here's what I'm saying. In every circumstance, this is what the Christian is called to. Receive what the chef sent you. It really, receive it means like step into it. Engage with it. Deal with it. Not escape it or demand that it be different. Culturally speaking, we all want the freedom and the autonomy of being able to always control and make our realities different than the ones that they currently are, and we're encouraged to do that. That's what we're told we're supposed to go do, and Paul is saying here to the Christian, you have to stop doing that. You, 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 that's not actually gonna help you. This, this, to live as Christ and die as gain, if you are not dead, it means this for your life, which means dealing with reality where there's gonna be sorrow and there's gonna be grief and you will be rejected and it will be hard and you are called to step into that and receive that. Receive your present tense, what is, as you are being called into it and to deal with it. As is with most deep theological truths, Coldplay has a lyric for it. <laughs> it's true. Uh, in their song, the last song on their most recent record, uh, Up and Up, says this. It says, you can say it's mine and clench your fists, or you can see each sunrise as a gift. You can say it's mine and clench your fists, or you can see each sunrise as a gift. 
Like, but that is the tension. We're constantly living in the tension of what we wish were happening, and if it's not happening, you can clench your fist and raise it to the skies and say, it's mine. I deserve to have that life. I should get this. Or you can see sunrise as a gift and go, I don't control the cosmos. And what I have is from my Father. And what I have is good for me. So here's what Paul's saying. Here's what he's inviting the reader. Here's what he's inviting us into losing. Here's what he's encouraging us to lose. Remember, winning by losing, that we would lose our control. Because anytime I decide to receive what is and live into that, I am giving up my control and my demand to control my circumstances in order to have all of my desires met. Would you lose your control and receive what is? That's a really scary thing. It's a really, really scary thing to give up your control, to loosen your grip on that. It would take courage to do that, which is another word that Paul uses in this section. He says, I've been given the courage to do this. Paul knew it took courage to do this. So how could he? What gave him the courage to do this? What gave him the courage to receive reality instead of going to get everything he wanted from his desires? Verse 19, here's what Paul knew. He says, I know, I know this. I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. What's the this he's talking about? His reality. Remember he's in prison? Remember he's being persecuted? Remember he's suffering? And even if he's let out of prison, did you hear what he said? All I'm coming to do is come and serve you and I'll still be suffering and I'll still be persecuted. He's saying, I know this. I'm convinced of this. That all of this, all of my reality will turn out for my deliverance. What in the world did he mean by that? And how in the world could he say that? Well, he didn't mean what some people have said that he means. He didn't mean, man, I know that all this, I know that all this means I'm getting out of jail. He doesn't mean that. And he actually says that in the section. Whether in my life or in my death, like they may kill me in here. And I may, I may lose my head, which he would. But he's saying, I know that all of this will turn out for my deliverance. This word right here, this Greek word right here, means three things. It means salvation, it means wholeness, it means safety. And here's what Paul just said to you. Here's what Paul just said to us. I know my whole life, which is Christ, which means prison and suffering and sorrow and rejection and death and grief and dealing with my reality, every part of my reality will turn out for my wholeness. Every circumstance in my life has to enter the alchemy of heaven and it will actually be transformed into something else that it's not currently right now. This pain, this suffering, this rejection, this sorrow, this grief, this injustice, these tears, all of it will have to enter the alchemy of heaven and will, through the power of Jesus' spirit, that's what he says, will turn out for my deliverance, will turn out for my wholeness, will turn out for my joy, will turn out for my healing. All of your tears will be turned into joy. All of your sorrow will be turned into wholeness. All of your pain will be turned into healing. All of your wounds will be turned into your deliverance. That's what Paul just said. Here, here's the audacity of what Paul just said. Whatever your reality is, or has been, whatever it is, the worst 
possible outcome for that is your healing. So the gospel of Jesus promises you. Paul knew it. That the worst end to your story, the worst possible end to your current reality has to go through the gospel of Jesus and the alchemy of the cosmos that he created. And he's saying, because you belong to me, I actually have the ability to do something that nobody has the ability to do. I actually have to take Romans 8 and say, whatever, all things are gonna work out for my good. And he knows it. And here's what he's saying. The only way you can deal with reality, the only way you're ever gonna be able to receive reality and deal with the pain of it and the loss of it and the rejection of it and the shame of it, the only way you can deal with that is if you know that it will all only end up here. You can't deal with it all, really. You can't step into it and receive it if you're not sure of this. He's saying, I know this. I know that my reality will turn out for my deliverance. He can deal with what is because no matter what is, it will lead to his healing. It will lead to his wholeness. So he's saying, there's nothing I have to be afraid of. Church at Philippi, you're worried about me. You gonna be okay? Are we gonna be okay? What if they kill you, Paul? How are we gonna survive? How, are you okay? How are you thinking? Are you sleeping tonight? Are you okay? He's going, yeah, because whatever happens to me will turn out for my deliverance. That's true for you too if you belong to Jesus. That all of what is right now is being worked by the Father of the house to be transformed into your healing and wholeness. Even if it kills you, you'll be healed. And the way Paul was sure about that, he says that, I'm sure of this, I know this, I'm convinced of this. You might go, well, I'm glad Paul was sure of it, but he was like an apostle and he like wrote the Bible. But the same assurance that Paul had is the same assurance that you have. He didn't have some like magic access. Is that if the Father of heaven has already spent his most valuable resource on you, which is Jesus, if the Father has already proved that he's willing to deplete the storehouse of heaven for your sake in the person of Jesus, then you can be sure that he will stop at nothing to turn your reality into your healing. Nothing will stop him from ordering the cosmos, sovereignly ordering the cosmos to spend his resources, to leverage himself, to order your providence to lead to your deliverance. He's already proven he's willing to leverage everything for your sake. So Paul's saying, you can be sure and not afraid that whatever your reality is will also turn out for your deliverance. In fact, there was one who came before Paul who was also torn between reality and desire. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's saying, hey, Father, I don't wanna drink this cup. I'm sweating blood and I don't want this. That's not what I want. But not my will, but yours be done to me. And so it's not like, hey Jesus, go be like Jesus because he was such a good example. He was a great example. But because Jesus chose to receive reality instead of getting his desire, it's actually now possible for you to do that too. Because what he purchased with that moment, when he received reality, he guaranteed this for you. And because this has been guaranteed for you, when we're torn between reality and desire, we can receive our reality too. If you're sure that no matter what happens to you, it will lead to your deliverance, there's nothing that could happen to you that you have to be afraid of taking that from you. So we're gonna sing about that. 
We're going to sing a very familiar song, one of my favorite hymns, about the never-ceasing mercy that was willing to spend himself for your good, about the, the Jesus who chose reality over his desire in the garden. And because we're gonna sing about that, here's what I invite you into. Sing, sing it out, sing with your heart, but would it give you the assurance that all will turn out for your deliverance to give you the courage to deal with your present reality too? Let's pray. Jesus, uh, we need you more than we know. Um, it's a hard place. Hard-pressed is a good description of reality and desire. The tension that exists there is part of what it means to be human in a fallen world that has things that we wish were happening but aren't happening. Would you allow us to step into our reality fully, not afraid of it, but with great courage to deal with it, knowing that whatever our reality is, uh, because of you and your gospel, it will turn out for our deliverance. We love you, Jesus, in your name, amen.